0: Tonight's message, you know, is from the Gospel of John and we've been preaching it uh, through it for a while and, of course, this message is really a continuation of the last message. So as you're listening to this, if you find yourself um, confused, what do you expect? We're talking about God, okay? Uh, but it might help if you went online and listened to the last message uh, from the Gospel of John. They're all there on our website, okay? So let's pray. Lord God, we ask... That you would help us to understand, or maybe I should say to know you. Lord Jesus, help us to preach you. Father, help us to preach your word, Jesus. And Lord God, if there's anything that I say that's not of you, would you just miraculously erase that from everybody's brains? And whatever it is of you, would you pound it deep into their hearts, into our hearts, so that we would never be the same? In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. According to the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, about 18 million Americans have alcohol problems. More than half of all adults have a family history of problem drinking. One quarter of all emergency room admissions One-third of all suicides and more than half of all homicides and incidents of domestic violence are alcohol-related. Almost one-half of all traffic fatalities are alcohol-related. Alcohol and drug abuse cost the American economy $276 billion a year. Galatians 5.25 states that drunkenness is the work of the flesh. 1 Corinthians 6.9 is very clear that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. A few years ago, I performed the funeral service for my brother-in-law, Kurt. He drank himself to death. And I loved Kurt. A few weeks ago, our own Sharon Hirsch preached on the story of the prodigal son and how, like the prodigal son, alcohol had decimated her own life. And so all of that raises a question, why do we tolerate this stuff at all? And now I know what some of you are thinking. You're, you're thinking, uh, uh, the Bible, you know, Peter, doesn't forbid drinking in, in moderation. Well, well, sure, but consider the following. One, some people have a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. Uh, what if you're one of them? Why take the risk? It's unsafe. And two, your moderate drinking may influence another's major abuse. And then is it not a a stumbling block? As a Christian, you are to be an example and testimony, and so you must ask yourself, especially in situations where some are tempted and where there is already abuse, you must ask yourself, What would Jesus do? Unfortunately for us, there are at least two places in Scripture where our Lord encounters alcoholic drink in social situations and responds appropriately and instructively. The first, John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, good, right? The mother of Jesus said to him, they've got no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, That's just great, huh? I mean, Jesus goes to a wedding party where it seems some folks have already drunk so much wine that they're unable to discern the good from the bad. He doesn't warn them against the hazards of drinking. Oh, no, what does he do? He makes 180 gallons of really high-quality stuff. That's great. That's just great. And get this, the second place in scripture where Jesus deals with wine is on the night on which he's betrayed. And what does he do with it? Does he warn against the evils of drinking? No, he institutes a sacrament, a holy activity. So now we've got Christians worldwide drinking wine during church services in the name of Jesus. And get this, if you were here last time, you know that the... First instance, first place, refers to the second place, and both of those refer to a third place, which is the great wine press in the book of Revelation, which, in fact, is also the cross on which Jesus takes our sins and transforms them into wine, wine that is blood and blood that is wine that flows from the wine press enough enough to cover the entire earth until all creation is intoxicated with love. See, if you think Christianity is simply about eliminating temptation through the institution of appropriate safety procedures, well, that's all a bit embarrassing, isn't it?
1: Hey, (laughs) whoa, is that really the blood of Christ? Yes. Man, that guy must have been wasted 24 hours a day, huh?
0: See what I mean? You know, he could have said, hey, guys, have some fish soup in memory of me. He could have, couldn't he? He could have done that. He could have turned the water into wholesome, non-foul milk. He could have done that, right? But no, 180 gallons of wine, that's embarrassing. And so we try to correct his work. Some say that in the Bible, wine is like the code word for grape juice. But if wine is really like the code word for grape juice, what's the point in saying stuff like this? Every man serves the good grape juice first, and then when they have drunk freely, the poor grape juice. Or don't be drunk with grape juice, but be filled with the Spirit. A deacon must not be addicted to much grape juice. Paul chastises the Corinthians for getting drunk at communion. On grape juice? I don't think so. You know, I read uh, of a restaurant owner arguing for a liquor license in a dry county in Georgia. He argued that, you know, Jesus turned water into wine, and the frustrated county commissioner, who was also a Baptist deacon, he fired back, I know he did! He's always been an embarrassment to me because of that. It's embarrassing. And so for thousands of years, we've labored to improve Christ's work through legislation like prohibition, blue laws, age limits, bartender liability. And obviously, more concerned for the public safety than Jesus, most Protestant churches have eliminated communion entirely or substituted grape juice for wine, therefore improving on the sacrament itself. And yet folks can still read their Bible. Jesus turned water into wine. pastor friend of mine was out to dinner and was having a glass of wine when a woman from our church in California walked up to him, saw him there, and she said, oh, my goodness, Pastor, I, I see that you're drinking. And my friend Ed said, yeah, I know. I keep ordering water, and every time I touch it, it turns to wine, and I don't know how to get it back again. <laughs> we laugh at that. But my brother-in-law Kurt still drank himself to death. That was his choice. You know, even if Ed's water did turn to wine, it's his choice to drink it. And then clearly, if you if you were at that wedding party party in, in Cana and and drank too much, that would have been your choice, and and that would have been sin. And yet, you couldn't blame the bartender, could you? You couldn't blame Jesus. Because we all know that he's like, you know, perfect without sin. It's like the only person that you could blame would be yourself. So if you get plastered tonight, don't blame me. And don't blame Jesus. You chose sin. You chose to get tanked on the cheap stuff, the poor stuff, which messes with your ability to discern the good stuff. Don't blame me. Don't blame Jesus. You chose sin. It's your choice. You see, this is what's so troubling to us, I think. Jesus just doesn't seem all that concerned about protecting us from our own bad choices. And for that matter, uh, neither does God the Father. I mean, God is the creator. Do you understand what that means? That means all wine, all alcohol can be traced back to him. Why did he make wine with the possibility that some might get drunk on it? For that matter, why did he make anything? Because think about it, you you know, every, every bad thing is a good thing gone bad. Why did he make possessions with the possibility that some would possess them, get greedy, You know, the greedy don't inherit the kingdom of God either, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Why did he make sex organs? I mean, really. You know, we could have reproduced, like, fish or amoeba, or he could have gone that route. Why did he make sex so stinking fun? With the possibility that we might lust, fornicate, and rape. Why did he make trees? With the possibility that we might hang people on them. Why did he make iron and put it in the earth with the possibility that we might make nails and pound them through living flesh? Why did he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil smack dab in the middle of the garden with two half-baked naked people running around with an evil talking snake? Why? Why does he not constantly protect us from making bad choices? (laughs) Because he could he has the power and yet every time we choose evil it's like he lifts his hands and he says as you wish and we wish for hell and so some have sought to improve his work by eliminating even the possibility of sin some have outlawed possessions, like Karl Marx and Joseph Stalin, but when you eliminate the possibility of hoarding possessions, greed, it seems you also eliminate the possibility of giving possessions, grace. Some have outlawed all sex. You can read about them in church history. Those groups tend to die out fairly quickly, but some have outlawed All sex. But when you eliminate the possibility, eliminate sex just in order to eliminate the possibility, even the possibility of lust, you tend to eliminate the possibility of of people, babies. Why did God set it up that way? Some Christian groups have outlawed wine. Which, you know, when you think about it, it, seems dreadfully close to outlawing the Lord's Supper. And now listen closely. I believe that God calls some individually to choose to only drink unfermented wine, that is grape juice, for a time in this world because of past addictions. If that's you, listen closely. Your freely given abstinence is an incredible gift to Jesus. But it's not a law. That you, yourself, must fulfill to be clean and get into the party. You see, when we make it into a law, we begin to worship an idol. And that is an addiction far worse than any wine. And when we make it a law, we criminalize this. The Lord's table and Jesus' command, take and drink as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's weird. How did we ever get to such a place? You see, God's agenda must be rather different than our agenda. His agenda must be a bit bigger than keeping myself safe or protecting me from all my bad choices. And you know, the church's agenda is supposed to be the same as Jesus' agenda. When was the last time you ever overheard a, a criticism like this? You know, just when we get everything cleaned up and everything in order and under control, everything in its pop- proper place, policies, procedures, and, and uh, all activities, these evangelical Christians come along with a cake of beer or 180 gallons of wine. Screw it all up. I mean, if we were really following Jesus, we might look a little less like policemen and legislatures and a little more like bartenders and waiters, know what I mean? We might look a little less like James Dobson and the Moral Majority and a little bit more like Sam and Woody on Cheers, remember those guys? See we thought that our job was to judge this messed up world fight for better rules and laws in order to keep people from committing sin and our lives safe from all harm. But that's not what Jesus did. He went to the party and made wine out of water in six stone jars. John makes it clear that the six stone jars were used for the Jewish rites of Purification policy, procedure, ceremonial law that the religious leaders uh, added to God's law because they thought their job was to judge their world and keep people from committing sin and therefore contracting infection. But Jesus takes these rather empty six stone jars of policy and procedure used by mankind to clean himself up. He takes them and he fills them to the brim with wine. That means that they can no longer be used for ritual cleansing. Cleansing from the outside in. Hey, did did you know that wine actually cleanses from the inside out? I mean, they've actually done historical studies about this, about disease and the plague around breweries and, and stuff like that. I, it flows in the blood and actually kills infection. Water can't do that. The New Testament reveals those laws um, couldn't do that. Actually, those those laws cleanse nothing according to the New Testament. In fact, Paul writes that the law actually increased the trespass, that the law can actually hide or mask the real infection and even empower sin like, like some kind of cycle of shame and addiction. Recently, I read an article that claimed that the culture with, quote, the highest probability rate for drinking pathologies was, quote, Protestant fundamentalist churches with no culturally defined roles for alcohol. A church with no culturally defined role for alcohol. Wow. And Jesus said, as often as you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. As far as we know, in Scripture, he never, he, he never said, well, we know he didn't in Scripture, and as far as we know, he never said, don't drink. But instead, when you drink, drink with me, thinking of me, Almost like law couldn't help us, but he could. Well, I don't know if that article on drinking pathologies was accurate, and I'm no expert on alcohol addiction, but, but my point is that God just, you know, he just doesn't seem to be all that concerned about protecting us from the possibility of making bad choices. You know, if you eliminate the possibility of bad choices maybe you also eliminate the possibility of a good choice. If you eliminate that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the, in the middle of the garden, I, I think you also eliminate the cross. So if you eliminate the possibility of sin, perhaps you eliminate the possibility of being made in God's image. And God is love. And maybe that's God's agenda. Making us in his image. Karl Barth said, God is the one who loves in freedom. You know, know, love is like a choice which is constantly made in freedom. Unforced as you wish like a kiss. For weeks we've been talking about kisses. You know when I was a kid I was required to kiss my sister, kiss my mom, kiss my relatives, sometimes even very pretty girls that were not in our immediate family because that was the proprietary custom among my people group, a form of greeting and saying goodbye, and it was all very nice. But 32 years ago, I kissed this girl, and she kissed me. Her name was Susan, and she wasn't saying hello or goodbye. (laughs) We kissed because we wanted to kiss. We kissed in freedom, and it was fire! But then again, you know, when, when you think about it, perhaps kisses should be outlawed. Because with kisses, you know, there is potential for an awful lot of pain and sin. You know that, right? An awful lot of uh, potential for pain and sin with kisses. But, but then again, there's also potential for a wedding party. 27 years of marriage and four wonderful kids. Dang! I mean, with a kiss, you could betray your Lord <laughs> or win a bride. To be safe, God probably should have made us without lips. No wine and no lips. (laughs) But he wants love. He wishes that we would wish love. And check this out. He said that love fulfills the entire law. Jesus fulfilled the entire law. And so, if you're in love, in Jesus, with Jesus, you won't break the law. Love fulfills the law. And yet, Scripture says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So you can't fulfill the law with law. Only love. But we want law. Because love is terrifying. We want the preacher to say, look, just give 10% of your income to the church and you yourself will be okay. But love your neighbor? (laughs) That requires all these agonizing choices in freedom. Love as I have loved you, said Jesus. That could get you crucified. You see, with the law, I save myself. But love is losing myself. I don't give Susan 10% of my income. But all of my income and all of myself, you see, nothing is as unsafe to yourself as love. So we hire preachers to turn love into law and wine into water and grace into policies, procedures, and regulations. You know, don't you, that it's when a couple loses faith in love that they call the lawyer. When Susan and I fight, inevitably one of us will get frustrated and say, look, just just tell me what you want me to do. Just tell me what you want me to do. Give me the law. And I can't tell her what I want her to do. Because I want her to want me in freedom. And she wants me to want her in freedom. We each want the other to walk over and surrender a kiss in freedom. Jesus, the great bridegroom, is at a wedding party. What does he want? What's his agenda? You know, later Jesus goes to another party and an unclean woman, a sinner from the city, anoints him with oil and tears and will not stop kissing his feet. It is highly inappropriate. And yet it seems to be exactly what Jesus wants. Simon the Pharisee won't give him a kiss, but this woman won't stop kissing his feet. She's lost herself. (laughs) Intoxicated with love. The burning, hot, outrageous, ecstatic, unbounded, unending, and furious love of God. And we, we want law. Because love, we find to be rather terrifying. Love. Jesus is the revelation of love. The, the revelation of God. Jesus is love in freedom. In his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, through one of his characters, Fyodor Dostoevsky tells the story of the Grand Inquisitor. In the story, Jesus comes to Seville, Spain, during the Spanish Inquisition. He heals the crowds, he loves the people. But the Grand Inquisitor has Jesus arrested and imprisoned. Imprisoned. And Jesus will not defend himself. So the grand inquisitor hurls accusations at Jesus for 12 pages and sentences him to death. You see, he's furious all over, over all the pain and suffering that he believes Jesus has caused. He tells Jesus that he has joined those who are correcting his work. This priest tells Jesus he's joined those who are correcting his work. Those who are ridding the world of the terrible burden of having to choose love and freedom. Those who will tell the masses whom to marry and whom not to marry, when to have children and when not to have children. Those who will regulate every kiss. He cries out, he yells at Jesus. You offered them something that was quite beyond them. It even looked as if you did not love them. You who came to give them your life Instead of ridding men of their freedom, you increase their freedom and impose everlasting torment on man's soul. You wanted to gain man's love so that he would follow you of his own free will, fascinated and captivated by you, you in place of the clear and rigid ancient law. Why have you come to interfere with our work? And why do you look at me silently with those gentle eyes of yours? Be angry with me. I do not want your love because I do not love you myself and I shall have you burned tomorrow." Then Dostoevsky writes the following. The Grand Inquisitor falls silent and waits for some time for the prisoner to answer. The prisoner's silence has weighed on him. The prisoner has watched him, listened to him intently, looking gently into his eyes, apparently unwilling to speak. The old man longs for him to say something, however painful and terrifying. But instead, he, Jesus, he suddenly goes over to the old man and kisses him gently on his old bloodless lips. And that is his only answer. The old man is startled and shudders. The corners of his lips seem to quiver slightly. He walks to the door, opens it, and says to him, Go now, and do not come back ever. You must never, never, never come again. And he lets the prisoner out into the dark streets of the city. The prisoner leaves. And what about the old man? The kiss glows in his heart. It started sometime last year while we were worshiping at Central. Every now and then in worship, I'd feel these really wild, weird little puffs of air. I mean, they would just like come from every direction every now and then. Really strange, I know. But that's the deal. Several weeks ago, one Sunday night, they were especially strong, comically strong. When Susan got one of her weird kind of words of knowledge dealies, and I saw her all at once grab this piece of paper and start writing frantically what she heard Jesus say, and he said this. He said, Peter, I have never stopped kissing you. Sometimes my kisses are sweet, sometimes they burn. But believe this, my kisses never stop. Sometimes people will ask me, hey Peter, how's it going down there at that new church? And I don't know how to answer. See, a few years ago I I thought I had church all figured out and Under control, 15 years of work, two books published, everything in place. Policies, procedures. And I had cleaned up pretty well. And I was proud. And then Jesus interfered with my work. Sometimes I feel pretty confused, hurt, and angry with Jesus. And people will say, hey, Peter, how are things going down at the new church? And I'll say, you know, I really don't know. But Jesus is kissing me. And I think I'm beginning to feel it. He's always kissed me, but I haven't always felt it. And no, I'm not just talking about puffs of air. I mean, puffs of air really don't matter. I'm talking about believing His mercy. The wine of the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. But then why would God make earthly wine with with the possibility it might be abused? I mean, why would God allow his children to sin? Well, perhaps it's so that we might eventually believe his mercy. Perhaps it's so we might eventually receive his kisses. Why would God make wine with the possibility that my friend Sharon might drink too much and lose control? Well, Maybe, it's so that eventually she might believe and receive his, his kisses. You see, he's always kissed Sharon Hirsch, for he absolutely adores Sharon, just Sharon, just Sharon. But Sharon is so gifted, capable, and put together, it must be hard for her sometimes to believe mercy. So maybe he allowed her to sin. So that stripped of all her accomplishments, she might believe and receive his kisses. You know in the story of the prodigal son that Sharon preached on a few weeks ago? Only one son believed and received his father's kisses. And only then, when he was returning from the far country, You see, maybe that's why his father let him go in the first place. Like I said, I performed my brother-in-law's funeral, but I got to see Kurt right before he died. We read the story of the prodigal son together, and then we prayed to our father in heaven. You see, my brother-in-law, Kurt, was a drunkard, but I don't think he died a drunkard. He died as what he always was, a beloved son. But now he could feel the kisses. He came home from the far country, and his father had saved the very best wine for last. So why doesn't God keep us from sinning? Well, maybe partly because we're already chock full of sin. So when we commit sin, we're simply expressing the sin that is already in our hearts. You know, Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. Dang, that would include wine, right? He said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out from a man, from his heart. A dead heart. Incapable of love. A dead heart. You see, perhaps it's exposed through alcohol. Perhaps it's exposed through lust. Perhaps it's exposed through tax evasion or arrogance. Or maybe it's exposed through religious pride. But freedom to sin is freedom to express the sin that's already in our hearts. And so, you see, we hate freedom. for it exposes our hearts. Let me say it again. Freedom to sin is freedom to express the sin that's already in our hearts. And so we hate freedom, for it exposes our hearts. And so we try to hide our hearts in a million laws and procedures and policies and regulations. We hate freedom for it, exposes, for it exposes that we are slaves to sin. That we, in fact, don't love love. And that we, in fact, have no one else to blame. That we have an empty heart. That we are not free. Not free to join the party. The truth is... No one is truly free till God makes him free. None of us loves till God gives us His love. And how does He reveal His love? That we might believe His love and we might receive His love and then love in return. Well, He made the earth and iron in the earth with which we can make nails. And he planted a tree in the middle of a garden. And he chose not to stop us, but to let us sin against him. And then he took our sins and transformed them into mercy. His cross is the great wine press. When we drink that wine, we begin to love in freedom. And we are made in the image of God. And the life of the party fills our empty hearts and begins to pump through our veins. And that life is God's mercy. So why doesn't God keep us from sinning? Romans eleven thirty two. 32, God consigned all to disobedience. Why? That he may have mercy on all. You see, all our bad choices reveal God's good choice. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I don't think God's agenda is keeping us from all bad choices. You know, if it is, he's already failed, Right? Right? I mean, I don't think God's agenda is keeping us from all bad choices. God's agenda is getting us to make one good choice in freedom. To freely choose to love him as he loved us. That we might receive his kisses and kiss him in return as we wish. Remember the movie Princess Bride? Did you all see the movie The Princess Bride? Raise your hand, it's required viewing, okay? In the movie, a grandfather comes over to read to his sick grandson, but the grandson would rather play video games. He's worried that the, the book his grandpa wants to read is a kissing book, and he doesn't want any kisses. But his Grandpa reassures him, the book contains fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, and escapes, and lots and and lots of danger. So Grandpa reads the book, the book The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride is a maiden who likes to order a farmhand around, and the farmhand always responds with this line, as you wish. And she begins to realize that as you wish really means I love you. They get separated. There's fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, monsters, chases, and she fails Wesley miserably, yet through danger and sacrifice, the farm Wesley wins her love so that as she wished was now as he wished. You see, maybe that's what this world is about. God is winning the heart of the princess bride who is you that you might develop an appetite for his kisses. And so, love him in freedom as you wish. They rode to freedom. And as dawn arose, Wesley and Buttercup knew they were safe. A wave of love swept over them. And as they reached for each other, kissing again. You don't want to hear that.
1: I don't mind so much.
0: Okay. Since the invention of the kiss, there have been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure. This one left them all behind. Ian. Now, I think you ought to go to sleep. Okay. Uh-huh.
1: Maybe you could come over and read it again to me tomorrow. As you wish.
0: Remember the picture last week? Mary goes to the cross of Jesus and kisses his feet, and the blood wine stains her lips. And remember the bride in the wine press? It's there that the heart of the groom is revealed, and she kisses him in freedom. So, you see, you could outlaw wine. And you could outlaw kisses. You could outlaw trees. And you could outlaw nails. But in the process, you would outlaw the gospel and be forever stuck in hell. You could outlaw every danger and every cause for stumbling, every rock on which men stumble. And in the process, you'd outlaw this. That on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins, as often as you drink of it. Do it in remembrance of me, thinking of me with me. And so we invite you, you are invited to the table of the Lord. To come forward, there'll be two stations, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The dark cups are wine, the light cups are unfermented wine, grape juice. They're both the life and the grace of Jesus. You are invited to the table of the Lord. You're invited to the party. And so come as you wish. That's like judgment. As you wish. Amen. If you wish, say this. Oh, Jesus. Silent in your heart. Just say, oh, Jesus. Thank you for kissing me. And I long to kiss you back. You are my Lord. You are my master. Save me. He's mighty to save. How many of you want to be saved? You want to be saved? (laughs) Good! Well, if you came to this table with like a mustard seed of faith, you are! And he put that mustard seed in you, because he's mighty to save. Now, I have another question for you. How many of you want to go to the party? Yeah, yeah. Well, the party is on the seventh day. And with these old bodies of ours, we haven't arrived at the seventh day yet. However, Jesus takes that wine from the seventh day and he puts it into those six stone jars uh, that are like a symbol of the law and the days of this world, of, of our life. And you see, when we come to him in faith, the party comes to us. And it starts from the inside and then it goes out. And when we come to church here, you're coming to a party. And if you want to experience the party, walk in the party, even though you're surrounded by garbage and crap and all kinds of pain in this world, well, then you need to remember um, why you do come to church. So when you come to church, ask yourself, what am I coming here for? Because I think most people think I'm going there to get some, you know, some ideas, some laws, a little bit of water so that I can uh, clean myself up and try to be good enough that I can get into the party. But you can't clean yourself up. Jesus cleans you up. And you come to church to drink his wine, the mercy of God. And that changes you from the inside out. And now I have another question. You want other people to go to the party? Do you? Because God called you to invite them to the party, you know that 's a big theme that shows up in the Bible and I was sitting there standing there singing, and I felt a little bit bad that I mentioned James Dobson because you know he's, a, he's I think he 's a good guy done a lot of really good things, but what I mean by that is when you go to a party, you need to ask yourself, why am I here because as, as as a young man and a Christian, and I still do this when I go to a party, I feel like my job is to Be like uh, James Dobson, you know what I mean? And analyze what's good and what's bad at the party. And let everybody know. Yeah, that's, you probably have had enough wine over there. You, yeah, you probably need to tone down, I'm a pastor, I know these things. But that's not my job. I'm not a disciple of Moses. I'm a disciple of Jesus. So my job is to go to the party. And it's not that sin isn't sin. It's that my job is to distribute the wine of the kingdom the grace and the love, the furious passion of Jesus the Bridegroom, and invite everybody to come home. And so believe the gospel, and you'll live the gospel, and you'll spread the gospel. And if you'd like a little more gospel, we invite you to just stay here. The band's going to keep worshiping. Uh, if you'd like coffee, that's downstairs. You can have coffee and gospel. Don't, it's not exclusionary. Um, and we invite you to go downstairs. So why don't I pray? And what's the first song of communion? Or uh, resound? What is it? Hosanna. That's a, good, that's a good song, right? Let's pray. And after I'm praying, we'll continue worshiping. If you'd like to go downstairs, that's great. But have a wonderful week. Lord God... Um, we say, Hosanna in the highest. You are the King of kings. And Lord Jesus, you really are worthy. I mean, you're just so good. And Lord God, we're scared of your goodness. So thank you that you have entered into that little prison that is our heart and kissed us on our old bloodless lips. Help us now, Lord God, to follow you out into the night and onto the kingdom. In
1: Jesus' name, amen.